the greatest sermon ever preached was only seven sentences long. In fact, it was a sermon that was more acted out than spoken out. It was a sermon of the omnipotent God who acted by apparently doing nothing. Crucified on a cross by the twitch of an eyebrow or the sensation of a thought, he could have left that cross and destroyed his crucifiers. But he taught out the patient love of God toward sinners by instead of escaping the penalty for sin, enduring it, that we might escape it. He endured the cross that we might escape the cross. He suffered the second death, the agony of separation from God. That's what was epitomized when he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the cry of the damned. He endured hell qualitatively. An infinite being suffering infinite pain to atone for the sin of the world. And yet, they rejected of heaven and earth and suspended between the two, yet he leans forward as if to invite all men to come to him. That was the greatest sermon ever preached. This morning we're going to talk about the second greatest sermon. We're going to look this morning at the Sermon on the Mount, which does not tell us how to be saved. The one from the cross does. Lord, remember me. Verily I say unto you, you'll be with me in paradise. That's how to be saved. Look at the crucified and say, Lord, remember me. That's how to be saved. But we're going to look at another sermon, beginning at Matthew 5, if you would turn, please. And this sermon does not tell us how to be saved. It tells us who are the saved. What are the marks? What are the signs? What are the evidences? that someone has found God. If you read this sermon, you can know whether you have eternal life. Not by whether your behaviour matches its ideals, but by whether its ideals are the ideals of your heart. For nobody's behaviour fully matches these ideals. But are these ideals the ones that you long for and hunger for and thirst for. This great sermon of Matthew 5, 6 and 7 is not a creedal sermon. It's not a creed, it's an agenda. It's not telling us so much what articles of faith we should cherish. It's telling us not so much what we're to believe as what we are to be, what we are to do. This is Christ's expansion of his preliminary text Repent and believe the gospel. When John the Baptist came and called all men to repent, and they were religious men. John the Baptist was like Paul. When Paul wrote Romans, he said, look, see those irreligious people? They're lost. That's chapter 1 of Romans. Then he said, chapter 2, see these religious people? They're lost. Then he said, see the whole wide world? Every mouth is stopped. And the whole world is subject to the judgment of God. For all have sinned and all have come short of the glory of God. Therefore, by works of law shall no flesh be declared righteous in his sight. So John the Baptist came to the religious people and said, Repent. And this whole sermon tells us what it means to repent. What sort of a person is it that has experienced saving repentance? The epitome of the teachings of our Lord on Christian living is this great sermon. 
And the epitome of this great sermon is the Beatitudes. And the epitome of the Beatitudes is the first one. So it's like Chinese boxes, you remember? One little box inside a bigger box, inside a bigger box. You think you're looking at one box, and you lift it up, and there's another one, a bit smaller. You lift it, there's another one, a bit smaller. Chinese boxes. And so the epitome of our Lord's teachings on the Christian life, the whole sermon. But the epitome of the sermon, the eight blessings that begin it, which we call the Beatitudes. Christ's set of congratulations to the human race. Congratulations. Congratulations. The benediction of heaven. Remember, while where we read blessed, to them back there it meant happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are they that mourn. Happy are the meek. Happy are they that hunger and thirst. Happy are the merciful. Happy are the pure in heart. Happy are the peacemakers. Happy are you if you are persecuted for righteousness sake. These are heaven's congratulations. The words must have seemed strange and new. There was nothing here to flatter pride. There was nothing here to feed ambitious hopes. There was nothing here like what they were used to hearing from their religious teachers. It was so different. Here's a miniature world gathered. It tells us that there were crowds. That's what the first line says. When it says he saw them, he saw them in an emphatic sense. He saw them as sinners. He saw them as needy. He saw them as dying. He saw them as unhappy people. He sees us. He sees all of us. He knows the desires of the heart, seeing the crowd, not as we see them, but as God alone can see them. We were made for happiness. And Jesus knows that happiness doesn't spring from what we have. Happiness springs from what we are. And there is the clue to a transformed life. People who are ever trying to seek to add to their possessions will never find joy. That's not the way of it. Happiness grows out of what you are. So Jesus can say, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are the merciful. Happy are the pure. Happy are the peacemakers. Not what you have, what you are. So here is the whole wide world in symbol gathered before the Lord, the inner circle of his disciples. But this is an ordination sermon. This is the sermon at the time of the ordination of the twelve. So he speaks to all of us who claim to be Christians in this sermon because we're all sent out as missionaries to an unbelieving world. Let's look at this great utterance. Apart from the words of the cross, the greatest utterance in all human language. It's been the comforter and the quickener of all ages. It's sweetened life by bringing heaven down to earth. Think how much it has meant to the world to have that ideal that whatever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. What that has meant to the world. The picture of a God who sends rain on the just and on the unjust, that calls his sun to rise on the evil and the good. What that has meant to the world. The practical admonition about not worrying about tomorrow. Sufficient unto the day is the evil of that day. Tomorrow will take thought for the evil of that day. Only live a day at a time. My, yard by yard, light is hard. Inch by inch, light a cinch. We get that from the Sermon on the Mount. Whenever you pray, say, give us this day. Not tomorrow's bread. This day. This day. This day. This sermon has brought heaven down to earth. It teaches us how Christians should live. That they should be like God. Love like God. Forgive like God. They should be like Christ. Trust like Christ. He that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. You could have no power at all against me. That was given thee from above. He walked in the consciousness of the 
presence of his father. This is how we're to live. Well, let's look at it. The Beatitudes are eight, but they really consist of seven characteristics of the true Christian with a special benediction given on all that have these seven. Because you see, the first seven blesseds here describe the characteristics, whereas the eighth blessing says this is what will happen if you've got them. The sermon, even at this point, is full of paradoxes. You would expect that when you have described the perfect person, someone that's kind, that's what the word mercy here means, it's a word that's translated 150 times in the Old Testament as grace and kindness. You'd expect that a person that was pure and that was merciful, that was a peacemaker, that such a person would be crowned, elevated, esteemed. He says, listen, when you're like this, get ready, you're going to be martyred. Blessed are those that are persecuted, despised, hated, rejected, maligned. So what people think of as the eighth beatitude is only a description of the inevitable destiny of all mature Christians. If you expect the world to love you, it won't. The day will come when he that killeth you will think he does God's service. If they've treated the master of the house in such a way, won't they treat the servants that way? So here is a sermon that's full of paradoxes. He describes the perfect person. He says, get ready for martyrdom. Our Lord didn't deceive people, did he? When he said, come and follow me, he didn't say you'll have a crown from the start and no more worries. I remember in New Zealand a few weeks back, I was travelling, I was about the only traveller in a bus and I stopped and chatted with the bus driver a bit and just about everything I asked him, he'd say, no worries, mate, no worries, mate, no worries, mate, every sentence, no worries, mate. I thought, you're a lucky guy, you are. No worries, mate. Well, in a sense, that was good gospel. If you're in Christ... There'll be all sorts of things that threaten worry. But if you live a day at a time, our Lord is trying to say, even though you take a cross, even though you hate the world, if you're in me, in the world you'll have tribulation, but in me you'll have peace. And he doesn't disguise either half. He doesn't tempt us by saying there'll be no problems, there'll be no worries, mate. He says you'll take my cross every day, you'll die. Die to selfishness. Die to your own willfulness. Every day you must die. But he says that cross will become a crown. Well, let's read the words. It says in the first verse, seeing the mountain, seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. A mountain, not a crypt, not a cavern, not under the sea, but like Mount Sinai, like Mount Zion, like Mount Calvary. Mountains that point to heaven, mountains that are elevated, symbolize a teaching that's heavenly. So he goes up onto the mountain. And when he sat down, when our Lord pleaded with men, he stood. His arms were outstretched as on the cross. Every part of his body preached. But now he's sitting down as a king and he's describing the citizens of the kingdom. He's sitting down as a judge and he's separating men. He's saying, you're either like this or you're out. So he sat down. And he opened his mouth. And centuries gone by, he'd opened the mouths of men who were the prophets. He'd opened the mouths of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Moses. He'd opened the mouth of John the Baptist. Now he, God, God in human flesh, opens his mouth. And he taught them saying, blessed. Oh, that's a good word to start with. The last word of the Old Testament was curse. This series of blessings begins where the law leaves us. You know, we sing a hymn about law and love combining. 
In this sermon, Christ talks about the law and the prophets. In the Old Testament, as in all good religion, you have precept and promise. Precept, the law, prophets, the promises. Precepts and promises. But the main thing that the Jews saw in the Old Testament was it created such a standard of righteousness that could only bring a curse upon them by their inadequacy if they depended solely upon their own righteousness. So you remember, the last word of the Old Testament is the word curse. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And the verses before said, Remember ye the law. And so, when our Lord begins with the word blessed, he begins where the law leaves us. The law strips us. The law condemns us. The law curses us if we're trusting in it. Because the law demands that I should love God with all there is of me and I should love my neighbour as myself. And who is my neighbour? You know, everyone in need. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and was half stripped. Whoever's in need is my neighbour. The law requires a perfect love to God and men such as you and I have never evidenced. We have only had a semi-perfection of love towards one person and one person only. And the mirror tells us who that is every day. That is the only person we have loved unceasingly, undeviatingly, regardless of behaviour. Our love of other people depends on how they behave towards us. Not how they behave, period, but how they behave towards us. That is the natural heart of the carnal soul, carnal person. We love according to where they love us. The law demands an unselfish love, a preoccupation with God, where God is central in all our decisions. And next central is our neighbour. So the law ends with a curse. The law strips us. Cursed is everyone that continueth not and all the things written in the book of the law to do them. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. That's a beautiful text. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It cannot save us. Law never forgives. Law never runs anything. Law has no energy. Law just describes me. That's why the New Testament says, now do you see it? We're not made righteous by doing what the law demands. For the more we look at God's laws, the clearer it becomes we aren't obeying them. His laws serve only to show that we are sinners. Now God has declared a different way. Now he accepts us not on the basis of our being good enough, but he accepts us if we believe in Jesus. That's Romans 3, 19-22 that I've quoted to you from the Living Bible, which is a beautiful paraphrase of those verses. So the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, begins with the word blessed. And it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, because that's your condition when you look at the law. Who can look at this law that demands infinite love? Who can ever say they've loved enough? Who can look at the demands of love and say, boy, I'm great. You can't do it. You're poor in spirit when the law's finished with you. The law punctures the illusion that you're good. The law punctures the illusion that you are self-sufficient. You see, in the first four Beatitudes, we are stripped of self-sufficiency and self-satisfaction and self-assertion and self-righteousness. The first four Beatitudes show us as we are after you've looked at the law. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Gone has gone self-sufficiency. Blessed are they that mourn. Gone is, gone is self-satisfaction. Blessed are the meek. Gone is self-will. 
That's why that hunger and thirst after gone is self-satisfaction. The first four Beatitudes describe the situation that that is transacted when you're converted. You see, the Beatitudes are the Christian's biography. If you have been converted, this is your story. This is every believer's story. To come to God, I must be stripped of my self-sufficiency. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That no, they do not have in themselves what the righteous law demands. I don't have it. I don't have it. All that is my own is my sin. I have nothing unstained or unspotted. My righteousness is as filthy rags. I am a moral leper. No thoughts as good as it should be. You know, Mother Teresa said, make sure that when anyone is in your presence, they'll be better and stronger. My, that was the law, a beautiful ideal. But do we fulfill it? Of course not. Any honest person looking at the demands of God is stripped of self-sufficiency, then stripped of self-satisfaction. They mourn over their transgressions, then stripped of their self-assertion. They become meek and then stripped of their self-righteousness. I want you to notice that in this sermon our Lord manifests a tremendous courage. He takes the abounding trouble of our world that causes us to despair and he calls it blessed. He says that we misread our trials. Now would you look at it closely? There's an overshadowing pall in this world for all of us. We are frail, weak, mortal, dying, selfish, sinful, Guilty and prone to all sorts of trouble. That's the overshadowing Paul. Buddha told a woman who'd lost her child, take a bowl and go to every home in the village and say at every house, if you have not lost a father, a mother, a husband, a wife, a son or a daughter or a slave or a servant, put a peppercorn in my bowl. So the woman went to every house in the village and came back to Buddha. She didn't have one. See, said Buddha, everybody loses. Everybody has pain. Buddhism says, sorrow is the great evil of life. Religion is meant to teach you how to bear with sorrow. Christ sweeps all that away. He says, that's wrong. He says, you're misreading trial. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. He says, sorrows will strand you on the rock of ages. That's the purpose of sorrow. He has the courage to say that if we will treat our troubles rightly, they will result in blessing. For trouble punctures the illusion that I am sufficient. Trouble punctures the balloon that what I have is my own. Trouble punctures the illusion that everything's just fine. No worries, mate. You're okay. Everything's hunky-dory. Just keep going as you are. I know, trouble punctures that. Every trouble is a mini-death. Every sickness is a mini-death. Every fear is a mini-death. Every problem is like being brought up before the judgment on a trial run. See? So Buddhism and all human philosophy says sorrow is the great trouble with the earth. Christ says sorrow is the great opportunity. Sorrow can strand you on the rock of ages. Sorrow can empty your hands of dirt so God can give you jewels. 
Sorrow can divorce you from the carnal and the worldly and the temporal and the evil. You know, we're, we're very much like these little flying creatures attracted by the light. The world has many glowing lights. Wealth and fame and possessions and power and sex. All these glowing lights. But friends, they will burn us. They will scorch us. If we use them other than as God says, they'll destroy us. So God in his mercy empties our hands of tinsel and garbage. He might put something better there. The courage of Christ. The courage of our Lord. He says, thank him for the storms. Remember, as it says in Psalm 74 and verse 16, the night also is God's. Moses, it says in Exodus 20, drew near the thick darkness where God was. Is your life shadowed with a great darkness? God is there. God is there. You remember when the three Hebrews were thrown in the burning fiery furnace? Daniel said, the king looked and he said, I see three men, loose, walking. Four men, he said, and the form of the fourth is like the son of God. When these Hebrews were thrown into the fire, when they were thrown into the furnace, the only thing they lost was their bonds. He said, I see three men loose, walking. The only thing they lost was their bonds. They were thrown in, bound. The fires burnt away the chains, the bonds, the ropes. And soon they were up walking. And friends, the trials of life, Christ has the temerity to say, the courage to say, blessed if you've got problems. Blessed. All the things you think are imponderable weights, insuperable dilemmas, overwhelming troubles, Christ says, thank God for them. Thank God for them. Blessed. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the sorrowful. Blessed are the persecuted. All the things we think are curses, he turns into blessings. Because, friends, security is mortal's greatest danger. Security is mortal's greatest enemy. It would not be good for us to be impervious to trouble and trial. To have no troubles and have no difficulties would make us think we were gods instead of creatures. Make us think we were something special instead of sinners that need forgiveness who can be made special as I accept Jesus Christ, I accept the gospel. Well, notice again what it says in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I want you to observe this word spirit. This is the hallmark of the new dispensation. He's not saying blessed are those that don't go through some outward form. Not blessed are those who are not kneeling, who are not doing this or attending that. He deals with the heart. The new Christian era has to do with the heart. True religion is the union of the heart with God. It's not being a member of a denomination. It's not being baptized. All these things may come into it, but they are not the essence of true religion. The true religion is the spirit, the heart, the mind. And he's saying in verse 3, Blessed are those that feel their need. Isn't it great that it begins there? Here's a ladder of light from earth to heaven. And he doesn't begin with blessed the pure in heart. We'd be shot down, dear friends. Pure in heart's not just talking about sexual purity. It means absolute sincerity. The pure in heart will one thing, the will of God. That's what it means to be pure in heart. 
absolute sincerity of giving God his place. You know, pure gold doesn't have any ore in it of dirt and mixture. And a pure heart's one that's not mixed up with worldliness, with selfishness, with self-will, with impurity, with wrong ambitions. See? A pure heart is one that gives God his place. Absolute concentration on God. I'm glad it doesn't begin there. Suppose the Beatitudes had begun like that. Less of the pure in spirit. I'd have shut the book. No good to me. But when it opens with bless of the poor, oh, I say, Lord, I can buy that. You see it? Blessed poverty. We all figure. It's for all of us. What wonderful expansiveness. Anyone can have it. I remember as a boy, I used to love the Labor Day processions in tropical North Queensland. All the barefooted ragamuffins like me would be down there in the front row. Here are all the crowds of the city for Labor Day. And why were we there in the front row? Because there was always a cart that went first throwing out saveloys to the crowd. Do you use the word saveloy here? What's the best equivalent? Frankfurters. Hmm? Hamburgers. Yeah. Throwing out these sausages to the crowd and all the small boys grabbed them, you see? Anything for nothing, dear friends. The gospel is for nothing. The gospel's free. That we might know the things that are freely given us of God. It has to be that way. If there's something infinite, how could finite creatures buy it? If the gospel's to do with infinite living forever and ever and ever and ever, you know, can you think of a great mighty mountain and a bird that every million years went and took away a grain of sand from the mountain? Can you think of this procedure? Here's a mighty Himalayas and here's a bird that every million years goes and visits us and takes away a grain of sand. How long will it take to get rid of the mountain? That's the start of eternity. So if God is going to give us something as infinite as that, how could finite creatures ever earn it? It has to be free, you see. So the good news of the gospel is that all the things we want are free. I want forgiveness of sins. A lot of people are sick because they're guilty. A lot of people are sick because of something they've done. They need to learn about the cross. It's undone the done. See, a lot of people can't sing, can't rejoice because they feel bad about what they have done, how they treated loved ones or ones they should have loved. See? But the gospel takes away guilt and it's free. All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He that cometh to me I in no wise cast out. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. So here are the Infinite gifts, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of righteousness, the righteousness of God. I can't manage with the righteousness of man. My ideals are much, much higher than I ever get to. Wretched man that I am, Paul's confession is mine every day, every conscious hour. There isn't a believer that doesn't experience falling short continually. Whoever says as they should say and thinks as they should think and does as they should should do, none of us. None of us. Browning said a man's reach should exceed his grasp. Well, what is a heaven for? But the law condemns me. And so God offers me the infinite righteousness of God that I cannot earn. It's all free. It's all free. And it starts with the poor. Blessed poverty. Blessed poverty. It's not the poverty of Uriah Heep that went around saying how humble he was. It's the honest awareness of a fact that in myself wrapped up I am a very small parcel. What our Lord gave was a very old truth, human depravity, human selfishness, a universal truth. Everybody's afflicted with it. There's no difference. 
I like those two texts. One says there's no difference for all of sin. The other text says there's no difference. The same God is rich under all them that call upon him. The universal disease, all of sin. The universal remedy, the same God overall is rich under all that call upon him. Oh, salvation's so simple. Just A, B, C. A, all of sin. That's what A stands for. A for all, all of sin. B, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. C, if any man will confess with his mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in his heart, thou shalt be saved. A, B, C, simple as that. It's got to be free. So he doesn't begin with the merciful because by nature the human heart's not merciful. It doesn't begin with the peacemakers. Often when we try to make peace, we make things worse. It begins with those that know they're in bad shape. And that's me. That's you. That's everyone that's seen themselves. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, all these beatitudes are paradoxes. Why should the poor get the kingdom of heaven? And then look at verse uh, 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not fun being made a martyr. So in the vanguard of this great Christian army, he puts the uh, poverty-stricken beggars. And in the rear of the army are people being cut down, burnt to death, stoned. And he says, blessed. Blessed. What paradoxes. A blessing on poverty, a blessing on the persecuted, and a blessing on those who sorrow. Would you observe that all the later Beatitudes, each one grows out of the preceding. Verse 3, the poor in spirit, because they're so poor, spiritually they mourn. That's verse 4. And being aware of how poor they are and mourning over their condition, they're automatically weak, uh, meek, not weak. The world thinks that meekness is weakness, but actually it's a strength. It's like power under control. It's holding the reins of a good horse. That's what it means by meekness. Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. But boy, he had power. He had fire. Jesus said, I'm meek and lowly in heart. He could cleanse the temple. They ran. Jews were separated from their money. They ran. He was meek. It's not weakness. It's controlled strength. Controlled, humble strength. Because one knows what one is. So you see, it grows out of the earlier one. These are the steps. These are the steps on the ladder of light to heaven. It begins with an acknowledgement of what we are. Never be ashamed to confess you're a messer. The evidence for me is so overwhelming, I'd have difficulty denying it. I'll never be ashamed of it. Lord, I'm a messer in every way. Ask God to forgive and accept, you know. We need to pray just as often for forgiveness of our stupidity. As for our wickedness, we're guilty of both. But he, he accepts us. Know who you are. You know, you've got to know the disease before it can be cured. So that's where it begins. And then the later ones all grow out of it. You mourn over that poverty. You're meek as a result of it. You know, a meek person means someone who an attitude to others doesn't assume superiority. That's a difficult thing to do. If you have any two people talking together for five minutes... I'm talking outside the Christian circle. It often happens inside the Christian circle. But any two people talking together for five minutes, by the end of that five minutes, one has assumed a superiority. See? And what the gospel calls for is a meekness where you don't have to be superior. 
You don't have to be. You know? It's a terribly big front if you've got to present yourself as never making a mistake. Boy, that's too much to care for. That's much worse than the Maginot line. Look how quick that went down. See? The meek person says, well, I'm poor. I don't have all I'd like to have. I've made lots of mistakes. I'm worn over my mistakes. I will not assert myself as better. The New Testament talks about submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. You've often heard it said that the trouble with a man and a woman who become one in marriage is they spend the rest of their marriage arguing about which one. <laughs> See? That, that's the lack of meekness. That's the lack of meekness. You've got all sorts of manuals in the shops telling married couples how to make it, how to get on. They're all talking about sexual procedures. What they ought to be talking about is ego procedures. What spoils the marriage isn't the lack of sexual ability. That's fairly instinctive. It's, it's ego. Ego is what spoils marriage. Selfishness is what spoils a marriage. Self-assertion, the opposite of meekness. This is what ruins a marriage. Not lack of techniques. Blessed are the poor and spirit. Blessed are those that know their true estate. You know, when a person sees what they really are, there are only two options. You can either suicide or Christ. When we see ourselves as we are, you either suicide or you accept Christ. They're the only two options. I want to remind you that the crown of the kingdom of heaven won't fit every brow. That's what this text is saying. If you think you're not poor, well, the brow won't take the crown. The crown of the kingdom is only for those that know the truth about themselves. They're a minority. What Roy said earlier was true. It's only a minority that gets the truths of the kingdom. The rest, they're mysteries. They're parables. Without a key. See? The great masses don't want to be told they're in a bad way. But they are. We are. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, each of these grows out of the other. Those who are meek because they know their problems want to be better. They hunger and thirst. That's the only appetite on which God puts a blessing. That's the only craving. You know, it's... uh, not many of us in the Western world have ever been really hungry. It's a different thing talking about hunger in the third world and talking about hunger here. It's like this word poor in verse 3. It isn't the poor that we use, just managing, hardly having enough. It's the word that means wretchedly, beggarly poor. And so the hunger and thirst thing here, it means the hunger and thirst of people in third world countries that have got to have food or die. You know, when you want God that much, you remember the story of uh, an Indian teacher who was asked by a disciple, how can I find salvation? The Indian teacher took him and plunged him under the river Ganges and held him down there for about a minute. And then when he came up all spluttering, he said, when you want salvation as much as you then want it air, you'll get it. See? Do you hunger? It's healthy to have good appetite. People are never hungry, not healthy. Parents are never worried about a child who's got a good hearty appetite. See? God's not worried about you and me if we're hungry. But if we're not hungry and thirsty to be better, if we don't, when we lie awake at night, cry, Lord, make me better. Make me kinder, make me purer, make me truer, make me less selfish, make me, give me humility. If we don't do that, we might well ask whether we're Christians. A Christian is someone that's hungry with the desire to be better. Thirsty for it. 
They have no boastings. They know they haven't got it. The person thinks they've got it. They don't hunger. Blessed are the merciful. That means the kind. The kind. You see, those who know they need forgiveness can never withhold it from others. When John Wesley was with Governor Oglethorpe, the Governor once said to him, I never forgive. Wesley said to him, well, sir, he said, I hope you never need forgiveness. People who know they always need forgiveness don't find it hard to give it. The person that can't forgive is the person who's never seen themselves as needing forgiveness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Oh, the tremendous things are implicit here. This verse is saying that what we are determines what we see. This verse is saying that life is a mirror. It's promising all sorts of delight to those who get into a right relationship with Jesus. We'll see God in everything. We'll see God in nature. You know, if an atheist looks up at the heavens, they don't see the stars, they just say, what are all the spaces between those lights? See? You're a believer, you say, boy, look at those glorious candles up there, those, those diamonds. God is scattered there. If you're a Christian, you can see God in nature, you can see God in providence. You can see God in your own life. Every Christian's life reads as miraculously as an Old Testament prophets. You should see God in everything. They'll see God. What we see depends on what we are. Life is a mirror. And then blessed are the peacemakers. Having received peace, for Christ is our peace, we begin to shed it abroad. Well, we've only made a little start. I want to preach on this sermon at least 200 times before I leave the pulpit. We're not going to try and do it all today. I want to turn you to the end of the sermon as we close. And would you observe, please, that at the end, verse 24 on, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house. It didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Dear friends, everyone must build. We're all building character. Everyone must build. Every thought builds it. Every word builds it. Every desire I cherish builds it. Every moment consciously I am building the building of character. Everyone must build. That's point number one. Number two, every building will be tested. The storms won't leave us alone. Lightning will strike every one of us. The building of character will be tested by trial and trouble, affliction, false accusation, bewilderment. Every building of character will be tested. And unless character is built on Christ, it will go down. Now the last word is this. Matthew follows the Sermon on the Mount with the story of a leper that came saying, Lord, if thou wilt, you can make me clean. Now, when you read other Gospels in the New Testament, it gives the healing of the leper before. Why does Matthew put it here? Blessed placing. Blessed chronological allotment, if I can use that expression. Whoever reads the Sermon on the Mount honestly 
which calls for us to pray for our enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, never to worry, seek ye first the kingdom of God, never have two masters, lay up your treasures in heaven. Whoever reads that suddenly feels, oh, oh, and you dwindle. If you start out a six-footer, you end up a six-incher. You see? I remember a man that said, whenever I go in to talk to brother so-and-so, I never have to open the door to go out. I just creep under it. <laughs> and dear friends, if you read the Sermon on the Mount honestly, you cut down to size and you feel like a leper. And so Matthew follows the Sermon on the Mount with the leper saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So when you read the Sermon on the Mount honestly and say, boy, I'd like to be doing that, but I'm a long way short, for I am yet a leper. You come to Jesus and he says, Lord, you can make me clean. He says, I will be thou clean. When he shows us his cross and we accept it, we are clean in a moment. And then in God's good time, he'll give us the virtues and the lifestyle of this sermon for which the Christian must ever aim, but upon fulfilment of which he never places his trust. Our trust in eternal life is in what Jesus has done, not what we're doing. Come as lepers and he'll make us clean. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank thee for this beautiful sermon, this light that can transform our lives as it reveals our need and sends us as lepers to Jesus. Help us so to read it and so to apply it and so to find that great salvation, which is the kingdom of heaven. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.